This program was first broadcast on Canterbury's access media station, Plains FM, and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. It's now time for Activate, a show brought to you by Amnesty International. Thank you for joining us for our August Activate show. Um, I'm Kerry and I'm here tonight with Greg. Oh, kia ora to everyone. It's good to be in the studio with you again, Kerry. Yeah, yeah. you too. It's been a while. Um, yes, yeah, since we've both been sat here together. But um, we've got a great show for you uh, this month. We're going to be joined by Jack Musgrave, who works with an organisation on the uh, Myanmar border with Thailand, uh, called Progressive Voice and his work, uh, he's a, a human rights lawyer, he's had got an amazing story and he's got a lot of uh, quite challenging but really interesting to understand information to share about what's been happening in Myanmar since the military coup at the beginning of February so uh, I'm sure that will be uh, something that will stay with us all after we hear that story uh, yeah. but we also have our regular human rights in the news and good news updates so uh, there's a lot to share today yeah well sounds good shall we get on with the show then indeed cool. <laughs> hi jack welcome to the show thank you for joining us today how are you doing over there i'm well thanks thank you very much for having me today I should probably be more specific. Uh, maybe you can tell us a bit about where you are, um, where there is, and a bit about your work and the organisation you work with, Progressive Voice. Yeah, sure. So I'm currently on the border of Thailand and Myanmar on the Thai side. And I've been here since May. Before that, I was in Christchurch uh, working remotely um, for Progressive Voice. Now, they are... a participatory NGO that focuses on human rights in Myanmar mm-hmm. uh, generally, but specific issues such as ethnic rights, rights of minorities, and focusing on the rule of law and, you know, kind of general human rights topics, but we do go into specific issues. So we are, we are looking at, you know, the humanitarian crisis at the moment and obviously the ongoing coup but you know and some things have been put aside because we we can't focus on that at the moment but generally those are the those are the topics that we focus on and you're originally from Christchurch as well or or elsewhere in New Zealand yeah I'm from Christchurch born and raised and went to Canterbury Uni did a law degree there and history and philosophy and I did an honours year in history, focusing on Japanese history. And but I was always interested in Asia. And when I yeah when I went to law school, I you know kind of moved into uh, you know focusing on people's rights, like freedom of expression. I was really interested in media law, but didn't really know what I wanted to do even after doing you know seven years of uni. So I moved to the UK and worked in London as a foreign qualified lawyer. And then getting sick of doing that, I decided to go to Cambodia. And I worked there, volunteer rights organisation. And I thought this is really what I want to do. 
So I thought I need to go back and study again. Uh, so I had another two years and I went to Sweden and I did a master's in international human rights law. And so now I'm a human rights lawyer. Wow. Mm, excellent. Yeah. So Jack, when did you, this is Greg speaking by the way, when did you get involved directly with Progressive Voice? How long ago was that? In 2018, when I was doing my master's, um, I had a contact mm-hmm. yep. who posted on a alumni uh, webpage for the human rights organisation that I worked for in Cambodia saying that there was a human rights organisation on the border focusing on issues in Myanmar and that they needed some help and I thought this is going to be perfect because I've got three or so months off from uni and so I thought I'll see what this is about, inquired and then through a couple of interviews and then managed to get an internship and then last year after I finished my studies, you know I was looking around for jobs, it was COVID time, I was kind of living in Sweden blogging, <laughs> trying to trying to do as much as I could to get a get a job, like get published or something. And um, they reached out and said asked if I was free and I thought, man, this is great. So I got to go back and um, I was there for a con- as a consultant for a while and now I've got a permanent role there. So lucky for Jack, I'm just going to ask you one of our questions now. And so many of our listeners will be aware from the news partly, but also we did some interviews earlier this year with Hannah Kaneen and Rowan Hamill-McMahon, who you know very well because Hannah's a, a friend of, I think it's a friend of your sister's or, or you'd known her before, yep. yep. Oh, that's right, yeah. Cool, so we did interviews with them and so the situation in Myanmar has deteriorated after the military coup at the start of February. So how would you describe the current situation as you understand it in Myanmar how does this affect people in their day-to-day living, especially with COVID, pandemic, and also the local flooding? What's the current situation? It's pretty dire. You know, the coup was bad enough in itself. Like, from the, as a direct result from the coup, there's 962 people have been killed, 7,000 arrested, 5,500 of those are still in detention, and then there's 2,000 arrest warrants that have been issued for pro-democracy activists, politi- uh, political figures and doctors and, and people like that that are involved in the pro-democracy movement. It's been compounded by COVID-19 with the Delta variant coming from India because Myanmar is like a poor, quite a porous border with India. And then there have been seasonal floods, but they've been much worse than previous years. Like even in, it was even flooding at my house here on the border where that doesn't really happen. And then there, there's been conflict. The Myanmar military has been attacking uh, on the ethnic borderlands with ethnic armed organisations. So, but I should preface that by saying, while they are officially trying to, you know, fight these ethnic armed organisations, they just end up bombing villages, IDP camps. Since the first February, it's been. Yeah, it's been absolutely horrific. It's very hard to characterise properly, but, you know, there, there's been conflict in Kachin, Shan, Chin, Karen, Karimi states. But like it, in this town in Chin state called Mindat, the military went in there and cleared the entire town of 90% of the population, so that's about 50,000 people. You know, there were reports of uh, sexual and gender-based violence, extrajudicial killings, so killing people point blank, 
So these are civilians, by the mm. way. Now all those people are displaced, and so they can't go back to the town because the military's in their township. So it's kind of like a ghost town. You see like pigs running around. There's no, there's no people. Elderly people had to stay behind, and disabled people had to stay behind. That's kind of where, where we're at there. And the UNHCR has tried to get in. So UNHCR has been able to, tr- to provide humanitarian aid for the people in the township, but not to the people who were in who are in the jungle being displaced because the military would not let them go in there. That's kind of uh, what we're trying to work on at Progressive Voice at the moment is to tell the international community that humanitarian aid has been weaponized by the junta. So if you partner with them to provide humanitarian aid, it'll be used for their political gain. It won't get to the people that are, uh, that are in need. They will use it to their advantage as, as much as they can. So, yeah, that's, that's the situation. Uh, with COVID, I think 6,000 people died in July from COVID, but the, the numbers like to be higher because the junta is the one that's providing this information. Yeah. Um, hospitals are turning people away. Preferential treatment is given to military personnel and their family. So in Calais, there was a young woman who was pregnant uh, in labour and seeking to find a hospital. Um, She also had COVID-19, which didn't help matters, and she uh, knocked on every door, but was unable to get treatment sent away. And she couldn't go, once she was in labour, it was about 9, 10 p.m. at night, she couldn't go out because martial law had been declared. And a week earlier, someone had been shot off their motorbike for breaking the curfew. And um, so, unfortunately, both her and her baby died at home because they weren't able to get the care that they needed. Um, oxygen supply is uh, not being able to get to people and the hunter now controls all of the oxygen supply for their own use. So people can't go, because people were getting tanks and going to the uh, oxygen plant to try and get oxygen for their families and loved ones so that way they could treat them at home because there's no places in the hospital. So that's now stopped because the hunter uh, decided that they would like to monopolise and uh, all of the oxygen. Like with humanitarian aid, the military is weaponising the COVID-19 pandemic to their own advantage, to, you know, kind of a social punishment for all the people who are part of the pro-democracy movement. Yeah, so mm. a long-winded answer, but that's, that's, where, we're, that's where we're at. Well, that's... that's- terrible to hear so many layers to that with uh, the pandemic and and local flooding issues but also you know the overarching humanitarian crisis and the level of military control it's it just compounds layer upon layer doesn't it yeah absolutely it's touched everyone's lives like no one is unaffected by by the coup and by covid and also i think for my colleagues here it's been quite demoralizing the 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 covid19 um, situation because they're seeing friends and loved ones not being able to be cared for or passing away. You know, simple thing is, you know, just having a respirator, being able to, things we take for granted, you know, when you turn up to the hospital that you're going to be able to receive the treatment that you need. Because with the coup, my colleagues feel that they're doing something about that. They're able to take action and we, we conduct advocacy and, you know, lobby you in. You know, we've got a lot of activities happening. But with the COVID-19 thing, they felt kind of helpless. 
Yeah, I, I can completely imagine. Well, I suppose I can't imagine, but um, it's almost unimaginable. But yeah, it must be quite intense to be on the ground and seeing these things firsthand. So talking about the international community, the kind of um, you know outreach that you're able to make and, and the things that you're asking of the international community, because um, which obviously in the middle of a crisis can make all the difference. What kind of action would you like to see happen? What sort of do you see would be ideal to happen next, including from the New Zealand government? And how might this help the situation? With the international community in the UN, humanitarian aid through cross-border aid that is diverted away from the humanitarian organisation. So in Kachin State, for example, they've got a big Christian community and the local church groups support IDPs, you know, with food and shelter. Those kind of time-tested local organisations who have a sensitivity towards their own community, who are able to, you know, understand the needs and provide structures that won't disappear once the money from the international organisations disappear. For the New Zealand government, it's pretty simple. They need to have targeted sanctions against the hunter. They need to recognise the legitimate government, which is the National Unity Government. They need to recommend to the Security Council to um, refer the situation of Myanmar to the International Criminal Court. So the perpetrators of these crimes against humanity or anti-genocide, war crimes such as bombing churches, bombing uh, civilians, targeting civilians, that that those people are brought to account because that's why the situation has happened because these people have not been brought to account. Uh, New Zealand government can lobby the UN to have a resolution for a global arms embargo so that way arms are not being sold to uh, Myanmar military. Largely they've been sold by Russia, China, Ukraine, Israel um, and the New Zealand government can also put pressure on New Zealand super funds to divest their holdings in mm-hmm. military-linked businesses because that's how the hunter is able to buy the weapons is through their kind of their, their businesses. So they've got oil and gas, they've got a port business, Adani Ports, which is supported by Australian and New Zealand investors. The New Zealand super fund, which is funding a aviation company that is building arms in China for the Myanmar military. So it's pretty simple. Like it's easy to connect the dots and there are great organizations out there that have collected all the evidence to show the links between New Zealand investment and Myanmar military. That's on uh, Justice for Myanmar is the name of the organization. And they track all of that. Also the United Nations Human Rights Council fact-finding mission on Myanmar, um, which was conducted after the Rohingya genocide, they show clear links between the money that's pouring into these military businesses and then those are being, that money is being used to perpetrate war crimes, crimes against humanity and genocide. So that's, that's in, a, in a nutshell. There's plenty, 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 mm. plenty of action. <laughs> yeah, no, that's very specific, um, Jack. That's very good. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. extremely specific. And that's some clear guidelines is there. I think um, we've got time for one more question from you, Kerry. Is that right? Uh, yeah. 
Yeah, sure. Um, well, I was just going to ask, you know, the current situation does indeed seem bleak, but I understand that your work with Progressive Voice aims to share the voices of inspirational people in Myanmar. So are there any particular voices you'd like to share as a reminder of the her heroic actions on the ground? I would like to have provided this answer by saying that the Spring Revolution is dispersed, local, decentralised, a true people's revolution with no real leader or figurehead. It's been quite sporadic. So mm. after the after the, um, the military coup, it was you know doctors and nurses and other medical professionals that took to the streets. They've all had to go into hiding into that or they've been arrested by the hunter. And that also made the COVID-19 situation worse because as the military continues to perpetrate violence against doctors, such as arresting them at work or at, at the hospital and, you know, taking their phones, suspecting that they're part of this pro-democracy movement, it, it has deterred them from going, returning, some of them returning to work. Um, mm -hmm. So I thought I'd share that uh, just quickly. One, yeah, one of my contacts, um, Kinomar, uh, she is on the board of Progressive Voice and she is one of the leading voices. Um, so if you'd like to listen to her for a Rohingya voice, I would go to Yasmin Ula. And she's part of the uh, Rohingya diaspora uh, in Canada. And she has like a wee podcast and she gives updates. So I think that that kind of those are kind of my inspirations, uh, those people. And there's, a, and there's a few doctors out there that, you know, are kind of leading the charge. Cesar Tan is one. You know, all these people you can find on Facebook and Twitter. And if you go to Progressive Voice on Twitter, PV amplifies our handle, and um, you can find something. Things I've discussed today. That yeah. sounds great. Thank you. And um, we'll definitely put a link to um, your website in the show notes in case people want to follow up on that as well. Lovely. Thank you so much for your time, Jack. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you and um, please do stay in touch with us and, and keep us posted on what's happening and, and how things are going. Thank you thank, thank you so you much for your time. time and just want to say namihi and kia kaha to you and all your colleagues and, and your very important work and take care. Take care. Take Good evening, Activate listeners and human rights supporters. This is Stefan, and I'm here to tell you some good news uh, in human rights over the last month or two. Uh, significant good news is that arms sales to Saudis have been suspended after a landmark ruling in the United Kingdom. The Court of Appeal in London ruled uh, on June the 20th, in 2019, that the United Kingdom government's refusal to consider Saudi Arabia's laws of war violations in Yemen before licensing arms sales was unlawful, Human Rights Watch uh, reported recently. The landmark decision now requires the UK government to reconsider its decision on arms sales to Saudi Arabia. The UK government has agreed to suspend arms sales to Saudi Arabia immediately until it makes a new lawful decision on arms licenses or obtains a new court order. France and other European countries should immediately also halt arms sales to Saudi Arabia, Human Rights Watch said. The UK government boasts of having the most robust arms control regime in the world, but now the court has spelled out what this actually means, said Clive Baldwin, a senior legal advisor at Human Rights Watch. 
the UK government now has to take into account Saudi Arabia's appalling record of unlawful attacks on Yemeni civilians when it decides if it can approve arms exports to that country. The ruling has important implications across Europe. The judgment addressed European Union standards for arms sales to countries with a record of abuse. These standards mean that no European state should approve arms sales to Saudi Arabia given its record in Yemen, Human Rights Watch said. A growing number of European countries have halted weapons sales to Saudi Arabia, including Germany, Denmark, the Netherlands, Finland, Norway and Austria. The European Parliament has called for a common EU position banning arms sales to Saudi Arabia. The US Congress has also voted to end US support for the Saudi-led coalition military campaign in Yemen. However, other countries, including France, continue to approve weapons sales to Saudi Arabia. And for some good news that's a little bit more local, uh, recently we received received an update from Amnesty International uh, based out of Auckland, head office, with the good news that disappeared person, uh, Singa Nunari, who is a subject of a recent urgent action case, uh, has been released. Uh, Singa Nunari is a Labour secretary of the Awami Workers' Party in Pakistan and a lifelong activist. Uh, he was abducted from his home at uh, 3 in the morning of the 26th of June this year in front of his wife and three young children. Fifteen men in plain clothes ransacked his house before blindfolding him and taking him away. Uh, Amnesty had been campaigning for his uh, minimum whereabouts uh, and his release, and uh, that has been released uh, thanks to people's actions around the world. Well, we've come to the end of the August show here on Activate. I'm Kerry and myself, Greg, here in the studio. Yeah, that was a pretty amazing discussion with Jack Musgrove, wasn't it? All the way from he was calling us from the border of Thailand. So it yeah. was pretty, pretty intense and he had some, there's some pretty um, dire stuff going on, as he said, unfortunately, and that situation isn't improving anytime soon. However, it's great that people like Jack and his colleagues are there trying to do the best that they can to support the people. Yeah, and it's really great to hear sort of from the people on the ground who've been there um, after the interviews we've had on the show throughout this year. And just as we wrap up the show, just a quick reminder for those of us who are in Ototahi, the next letter writing group when you listen to the show will be on the 15th of September and you can get all the details by going to our Amnesty International and Christchurch New Zealand Facebook page or email us at amnestychristchurch, all one word, at gmail.com. And just a quick plug for the regional team, we'll also be meeting before that on the 2nd of September. Again, you can get those details on our Facebook page. I just wanted to say thank you to the Plains FM team. Thank you very much to Nikki, who's been our producer for today and her wonderful work, and everyone else on the Plains FM team. Would you like to shout out to anyone else as well, Kerry, before we go? Uh, Well, just uh, thank you for joining me tonight in the studio. Thanks to all of our listeners for listening in. Enjoy the rest of your month. Indeed. See you later, everyone. Bye.